Good day, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know if you're aware of the author Henry Sire, or Sire, I'm not really sure how you pronounce it. He's a renowned scholar, and uh, I believe he had a very high position with the Knights of Malta, a very classic, traditional Catholic, historically, um, order of knights within the church, very established Catholic professional and intellectual. Well, he wrote a book some years ago called The Dictator Pope. I believe when he wrote it, he wrote it under a pseudonym. And eventually he sort of came out as, you know, I'm the author of this. And it was one of the first sort of bombshells about the, not just papacy of Pope Francis, but about the actual career of Pope Francis in Argentina. Now, Mr. Sire has written prolifically about this because he himself is very fluent in Spanish. I believe he's Spanish on his mother's side or something like that. And um, he did a lot of actual sort of firsthand research in Argentina. And the book wasn't, you know, a, I'm going to throw rocks at the Pope here. It was more about, objectively speaking, this man has been an administrator, a prince of the church for a long time, and he has a very sordid track record, a history that cries out to heaven for injustices and so forth. And he shed light on why, in fact, Pope Francis has never made a visit back to his homeland in Argentina. That's really something, isn't it? I, you know, I'm thinking we have a cardinal in Canada, Cardinal Collins, known as a pretty relatively conservative guy, um, half decent. I mean, he's been pretty good to tradition in Toronto until he was moved somewhere else. Um, point being, though, I mean, he's the kind of individual you could see being a pope. He's sort of middle of the road, etc. I imagine if he was made pope, he'd make his first visit back here. It'd probably happen pretty quickly. It's kind of a big deal when a, a fellow countryman becomes the pope, whether he's the best pope or not. It's obviously a very important thing in the history of the church, and you'd want to go home and share in that joy with people, wouldn't you? Well, Pope Francis hasn't done that. Henry Sire wrote an article that just was released today for 1 Peter 5 called The Great Betrayal. And there's really nothing I can add as commentary to it better than what he did. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually just simply going to read the article to you. And the reason I'm going to do that is, you know, we try to forget about Pope Francis. You know, if you look at my timeline for my YouTube videos, in fact, for, you know, many weeks and months, I'll, I'll barely talk about Pope Francis. I remember one of these uh, Pope Splainer, Vatican Splainer type guys came after me and said, you know, I'm constantly attacking the Pope. And I did a response video and I went through about 30 videos. And I think two of them mentioned the Pope and the rest of them had nothing to do with it. Point being, we try to ignore Pope Francis. We want to just get on with our lives. But he's the gift that keeps on giving. And this recent egregious overstep with fiducia supplicants, this document giving the blessings to gay couples and unions. Couples and unions are the same thing, by the way. It's sophistry to say otherwise. In any case, this has reopened a can of worms just when you thought things couldn't get any worse. And it's sort of like that scene from the third, uh, third installment of the Godfather series. You know, I tried to get out, but they keep pulling me back in. You try to drop it, but they keep pulling you back in. So I'm going to read the article because I know many of you would otherwise not uh, read it, and I hope that you enjoy it. I'm going to do my best to give him justice with how I narrate it for you. But before we do that, I'd like to talk to you about two things. First, the Canadian Martyrs Men's Conference, which is taking place in under a month in Stratford, Ontario, Canada. The Canadian Martyrs Men's Conference is the only traditional Catholic men's conference in North America, meaning it's not just Catholic, but it's traditional Catholic from root to fruit, as they say, with keynote speaker Father Michel Rion. I'm giving a talk. Tim Flanders is giving a talk. Father Stannis is giving a talk. There's all-day confessions. The night before 
uh, there are there's a social event that I think at this point about 80 men have signed up for, and the tickets are selling like hotcakes. It's going to be much bigger than last year, which is awesome. And it's only $100 Canadian, and the hotel's very affordable. We try, we try to keep this price down for people to be able to come. We've got people coming from all over North America, of course, many, many of me from Canada, but we've got, I don't know, probably 30 or 40 men signed up from the United States, which is amazing, made this real international impact, and it will be the best men's conference you've ever been to in your life. I can guarantee it. Check out the link in the description for that. And the next thing I'd like to talk to you about quickly here is a trip, a pilgrimage that I will be on in the late fall uh, in November in Italy with Father Albert Calio. And here's a quick promo for that. All the trouble in Rome, it is easy to forget about one unshakable fact. Our church is the Roman Catholic Church and Rome is the Eternal City. What a perfect time to go on a pilgrimage to the Eternal City and the other monumental sites of Catholic heritage in beautiful Italy. Join Father Albert Calio and me this November as we tour through the shrines of Italy and the Amalfi Coast as we attend daily Mass in the Old Rite in the footsteps of St. Peter and St. Francis. Click the link in the description to register for this once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to discover the heart of the Catholic faith in the heart of the old Roman Empire. Click the link in the description or visit kennedyhall.ca slash Italy. That's kennedyhall.ca slash Italy or just click the link in the description wherever you get your podcasts, wherever podcasts are sold. And I lied, there's one more thing. You can check out my Substack, which is Mere Tradition on Substack. Today, I actually just put out an article for paid subscribers. It's our fourth installment in a Bible catechism series. And we went through who wrote the Bible. And in fact, every paid article is narrated with my professional audio booth, professional audiobook sound equipment. So it sounds even better than this. It's like listening to an audiobook. So check out meretradition.substack.com. Link for that in the description to this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's take a look at this article here from Henry Sire. I'm just going to pull that up here for us. It's called The Great Betrayal. So here it is on 1 Peter 5. And I'll begin. In the past few weeks, we have received a great blessing, the demonstration that for a large section of the Catholic Church around the world, Pope Francis has gone too far. It's going to make that bigger for you. All the indications until now were that there was no limit to the capacity of the faithful to accept this Pope's paltering with Catholic truth. But we now see that the limit was there, and that with fiducia supplicants, it has been overstepped. All the same, against this benefit, there is a much greater evil, the state of the church that made Francis think that he could get away with his shameful document in the first place. This low state includes many aspects. Large among them is a time-serving and subservient hierarchy. But the one I want to discuss here is the failure of the Catholic Church in the past 60 years to put across to the faithful its teaching on the family and on sexuality. The attack on the Christian ideal of the family began centuries ago with the Protestant acceptance of divorce and in the 19th century, it began to assume a more ideological tone with the rise of feminism. The impact of the First World War visibly shook traditional mores as women began to abandon the standards of modesty that had prevailed since Europe became Christian. Divorce became widely accepted and the advocacy for contraception began to shake the instinctive abhorrence of it, which had survived even in Protestant societies. Against this tide, Pope Pius XI found it necessary to publish in 1930 
the encyclical Casti Conubi, opposing the new trends. Thereby, Pope Pius fulfilled the perennial duty of the Church of reaffirming Christian teaching against the errors of the time. But the many did not consist in isolated moral evil, or sorry, the enemy did not consist in isolated moral evils. It was a whole false anthropology that was arising from a newly godless society prompted by the ideology of the French Revolution. The advanced world was beginning to see human society as an artificial collection of citizens in which sexual differences, uh, sexual difference was a mere physical accident, the means that evolution had happened to find to procreate life. Today, the moral framework that Pius XI expressed in Casti Canubi has become totally alien to the modern world. So far have we traveled on the neo-pagan road, but worst is the fact that that alienation abounds among Catholics too, both laity and clergy. The cause of this is the disintegration of Catholic philosophy provoked by the Second Vatican Council. It's a wonderful line. It was glimpsed even in the documents of the Council itself, the problematic declaration of the Council Gaudium et Spes, programmatic, excuse me, uh, declaration of the Council Gaudium et Spes, in its zeal to preach a modern message, thought it appropriate to urge the social progress of women and to speak as if the capitalist regime of unfettered competition, even between the sexes, were the natural order of society. The breakdown became general in the climate that followed the closure of the Council. In the priesthood and in the seminaries, an assumption spread that the rule of celibacy was about to be abolished, with dire repercussion on vocations and especially on the ethos of chastity in the clergy. Among the laity, there was a parallel assumption that the church's teaching on contraception had been superseded and was soon going to be changed. When Pope Paul VI attempted to restate the traditional teaching in Humanae Vitae, he provoked a collapse of papal authority. His encyclical was met with immediate vituperation, and in the sequel was widely ignored. These were incidences, incidents, excuse me, in the disintegration of the whole Christian way of thinking, taught to regard aggiornamento as the new rule of faith. Catholics surrendered to a neo-pagan ideology of human nature. The laws of sexual morality became to them isolated prescriptions which they no longer understood because they had lost touch with their philosophical foundation. There is therefore no hope of teaching the modern generation to understand Christian morality unless they free themselves from the categories of the modern world and replace them with the perennial philosophy of the church. That view is in fact older than the church itself and belongs to the first revelation of God to mankind. It stems from the lessons taught by the first chapters of Genesis, which are confirmed by natural reason, and they constitute a luminous proof that those chapters are the inspired word of God. Genesis teaches, firstly, the transcendent truth that God created man in his own image. Secondly, it teaches that God created a man and created a woman to be his wife and companion. From that truth stems the fundamental reality of the family, and thence the whole nature and meaning of human society. Yet implicit in these two truths lies a paradox. The human family is the image of the perfect union of persons that exist in the Trinity, yet in the Trinity there is no division of sexes. The Son is begotten by the Father, and the love between them, as St. Augustine teaches, is personified in the Holy Ghost. In earthly society, we have a difference. A human person is not begotten by a father alone, but brought into being by a father and a mother. This is a relation that does not exist in the Trinity, and we need to ask ourselves why it is so. Clearly, God could have devised a human race with no sexual difference, with different means appointed for procreation. 
Why, therefore, did God create a race divided between men and women? The answer must be that he did so for the sake of the Incarnation. The reason why every human being derives his nature equally from a man and a woman is that that was the only way in which a being could come into the world who was by nature both God and man. The alternative would be to think that God invented an arbitrary order of humanity and then imp improvised the Incarnation from its accidents. That is the absurdity implied by those absorbed in the assumptions of the world. The truth is the opposite. A human race, the human race, was devised to make the Incarnation possible. The duality of the sexes is the natural precondition for the supernatural duality of the Incarnation. It follows that the difference of the sexes is not a physical accident imposed on a personality, but is integral to human nature and its relation to God. A man is the kind of human being that God devised in whom the Incarnation was to be realized. A woman is the kind of human being that God devised as the vessel of the Incarnation. God could only have become incarnate as a man because the male sex was formed to represent him. He could only have become man as the son of a woman because the female sex was formed to bear him. From this anthropology, we also learn the meaning of the family as the reflection that God intended of the Trinity, making divine truth the model of human society. The family was to be the setting of unchanging love in which each child should grow and draw his first notions of reality, of value, of virtue, and of what it is to be human. So fundamental was this divine plan that we see the instinct of the family planted deep in human nature, even human nature as it struggled on after the fall. In primitive societies, though unable to articulate their moral framework, we see a respect for the marriage bond that could almost be thought superstitious together with a natural horror of lusts that work against it. The loosening of the institution of marriage and the acceptance of perversion appears as an artificial vice in over-sophisticated societies such as ancient Athens and Rome, and it has always been recognized as the harbinger of decadence. Human marriage is therefore one of the loftiest ideals that God puts before us. But when we consider the gulf between the ideal and the morass of sexuality as the fall has made it, the lesson we must draw is the essential place that the virtue of chastity has in protecting the marriage bond, the castum conubum, conubium, that Pius XI exerted himself to defend. The lesson is even stronger when we look at the havoc that our own unnatural society has wrought with the ways of nature. We learn how important it is that Christians should understand the divine plan of human nature and repudiate the false ideology that has arisen amongst us. That was the challenge that faced the Catholic Church in the 20th century, and she has failed it sadly. Where we should have had wise and courageous defenders, we have been led too often by mealy-mouthed shysters, whose gospel is accommodation to the habits of the world, who talk of the need to be pastoral and to recognize the reality of human situations, and to even turn on the church herself and accuse her of historic bigotry and intolerance as the basis of her moral teaching. What we now have with fiducia supplicants is this betrayal raised to the status of papal magisterium. One needs to recognize also the diabolic effect that this betrayal has had on our world. The weakening of the Catholic Church had its impact on other religions, notably the Anglican Communion, which by now has abandoned any attempt to uphold Christian sexual morality. And the same failure has afflicted most of the other Protestant sects. The collapse set in from, from the time when the Catholic Church's witness began to fail at the time of the Second Vatican Council and its result was that the Christian underpinning of secular societies rapidly gave way. 
abortion, sodomy, pornography, lost the legal prohibition and the stigma that they had had before, and an ethos of pagan hedonism conquered what had previously been Christian nations. We learn from this the free reign that is given to the devil when the church and the vicar of Christ fail in their duty. The most grievous example of it has been in the last few years. Having won all his previous battles against the natural family, the devil found a new insanity to let loose on neo-pagan society, and it was the ideology of gender. Suddenly, about ten years ago, the oracles of modernity began proclaiming that sex is not a biological reality but a social construct, that there are not two sexes but forty-seven, or whatever number the Kabbalist wishes to conjure up. That a person's sex is not what nature made it, but what he or she chooses to identify as. And they launched a fanatical campaign to encourage people to undergo surgical mutilation and to indoctrinate children with a message of confusion as to their sexual identity. This madness sprang out of nowhere a decade ago, and the most shocking thing has been the silence of the Catholic Church in the face of it. If we had a pope who knew his duty, as Pius XI did, he would have made it clear at once that to change one's sex or another person's sex is a moral enormity of the worst order and absolutely forbidden by the church's law. And he would have taken arms against the campaign of insolent falsehoods to which modern society has surrendered. Instead, the flock have been left without a shepherd, while the devil advanced with giant strides among human souls. Pope Francis has been talking about climate change. This is the context for the Pope's gross failure to proclaim Christian teaching regarding the sin of sodomy, a subject on which he has shown himself by many private statements to be an obvious heretic. It has been brought into the open by his publication of Fiducia Supplicans and by the subsequent disclosure that the head he has appointed to the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith is a man with the theolo theology of an erotomaniac. The wider betrayal, however, has been the church's dereliction of duty when it comes to the ethics of the family and the virtue of chastity. The situation of the world today is the one of which Sister Lucia of Fatima warned Cardinal Cafara. A time will come when the decisive battle between the kingdom of Christ and Satan will be over marriage and the family. It needs no supernatural vision to affirm this, since it is with us for anyone who has eyes to see. The Prince of Lies has been making willing subjects in their millions around us, and the church has not been standing for the truth, and that failure will continue as long as this past master in deviousness sits on the throne of Peter. Thank you to Henry Sire. Ladies and gentlemen, I urge everyone to go over to 1 Peter 5 and check out that article, share it, print it off, share this video. This is an astoundingly important truth. And there is one thing that he said in there which demonstrates his courage when he mentioned the Kabbalist. What is he talking about? Anyone in the crowd? He's talking about the elder brethren, the Red Sea pedestrians. The Amish, as my friends at Avoiding Babylon like to say, because the Amish don't have an Anti-Defamation League. He's talking about the folks who seek to establish the state of Israel. You catch my drift. Now, of course, we speak in the general here, and not in universal about every single person. But there's something at work here in the background of this dialectic, this inversion of morality, which is found in post-Temple Judaism, Kabbalistic Gnosticism.
which is rampant even in mainstream scholarship of the elder brethren. It's not a comfortable subject for people to bring up, but it's there. And if you want to know who's behind this, you got to go past the Freemasons. You have to look at the philosophical underpinnings that inspire that. Uh, perhaps you remember Archbishop Vigano put out a letter during Trump's pregnant or pregnancy. Goodness, <laughs> sorry, his presidency, his is is a campaign in twenty twenty, and he used the term "salve et coagula." It's the idea that you, man, what's the translations? It's a sort of you dissolve and you solidify. It's this idea that you have this dialectic. It's this notion in Freemasonry, in Gnosticism, where you sort of mix opposites and you melt them down. It's alchemical. It's like alchemy. This is the demonic philosophy of the uh, Kabbalistic Jewish mysticism that underpins all of this. And if you look into the writers behind these things, you will find examples of this. I think I've said enough to get myself in trouble if I keep going. As always, ladies and gentlemen, let me know what you think of the comments. This has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless.